Good evening, everyone. My name is Ming. If you haven't already met me, and I'm just one of the ministry apprentices here at Uni Church. Uh, but before that, I'm just a Christian, a fellow follower of Jesus, who alongside you just wants to hear what God's word is on about. Now, some of you know this is my second year of this apprenticeship. Uh, and while there's been tons of growing pains, uh, there's been tons of things I'm really thankful for. And being up here tonight to walk alongside you and wrap up this really encouraging series is one of these moments that I'm thankful for. And so how about I pray for us, uh, asking God to help us to see in this passage why Jesus is the king worth following. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, we want to praise you, praise you for giving us life, giving us your word, giving us Jesus. Uh, And as we come to you this evening, we pray that you may help us to listen just to, just to stop and listen to you, uh, and may your words be clearly heard so that we might see your son, Jesus, for who he is, our King, our Lord, our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, this series, this series we've been going through, uh, this last chunk of Luke is a narrative, a historical narrative going through a story going through an account of Jesus' life. Now, I've never preached from a narrative before, and when I found out I was preaching today, I started to get a little worried, admittedly. Uh, I got worried because I had no idea what I was going to communicate, how I was going to communicate the so what for all of us. I was worried because I saw reading Luke as like reading a story or or a comic book strip, and I had no idea how I was going to communicate any application for us. But then it hit me. But then it hit me as I looked closer at the passage. An epiphany. A moment of realization. When on Wikipedia, they call it the Eureka effect. The aha moment. I think we can all relate to this feeling. It's like when you've been trying to remember that catchy song for the last three hours. And then it suddenly hits you. It's like when you've been trying to arrange the furniture in your house for the last few days. And then all of a sudden... It starts to fit together nicely. When you realize plan B is actually better than plan A. Or if you, if you can't relate to any of these, here's one that you definitely have experienced. When you've been trying to look for the keys all morning, but then you realize that they've been in your pocket all along. <laughs> this eureka effect, this moment of realization happens to all of us. And this passage, this word from God himself shows two scenes. Two moments of realization for the disciples of Jesus. And these scenes show us a transformation. A transformation that comes in three parts. Now you'd see in your outlines they're completely blank. Now they're blank because uh, I didn't want to give you any spoilers. I want us all together (laughs) to experience this Eureka effect today. But you can write down these three points to follow along helpfully. Divided equally. First, we're going to have a look at the original state, the state of unbelief, of disbelief. Stage one, the I don't get it state. Then we'll see the process, stage two, the catalytic moment, the moment of realization and its cause. And then finally, stage three, we'll see the end result, the final product. So come with me now as we look to see this transformation this moment of realization. Stage one, disbelief. Verse 13, it's on the screen. Now that same day, 
Two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. We've got a couple of Jesus' followers who are heading away from where Jesus was crucified, away from where Jesus' tomb was. Then we find out in verse 14, together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk alongside them, just, just casually. But then they were prevented from recognizing him. I wonder what these two were arguing and discussing about exactly. Arguing so intently that they didn't even recognize Jesus. The man they saw with their very own eyes be killed. Crucified. Standing right in front of them. Now fortunately for us, we find that Jesus is a little curious as well. And he asks them, what are, they argue- what are you arguing about? Verse 17. What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in these days? What things? Jesus asks them. With Jesus right in front of them, these two men are totally oblivious. Are you the only visitor who doesn't know what happened? As if they know the full picture already. But what's more astounding is Jesus doesn't immediately jump at his followers and say, Look, it's me. I'm alive and well. But instead, first, Jesus is patient. Jesus listens to them first. Jesus doesn't just come to them and impose reality onto them. But like a good teacher, he wants them to realize the truth first themselves. Verse 19. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. Red flag number one. Red flag. Jesus' identity. As Jesus listens to these followers, he's watching out for symptoms of disbelief. For these disciples, these two men, Jesus was just a prophet. Just, just some man. A man with something important to say. Verse 20. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Red flag number two. Red flag. What did Jesus come for? Jesus learns that these disciples were pretty gutted that Jesus wasn't the one. The one who wins back and redeems Israel from the Roman power at the time. Disappointed that Jesus wasn't the powerful political leader they expected to rule with an iron fist that snatches Israel from Roman's evil grasp. But instead, they were sad that Jesus simply died. Verse 21. Besides all this, it's, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some woman from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. And you guessed it. Red flag number three. Red flag. What happened to Jesus? To these disciples? Jesus is dead. You can't find him. He's gone. And as Jesus listens, we get to see these three symptoms of stage one in the transformation. Disbelief. I want to take this opportunity for us to all reflect 
and think of all the signs of these symptoms in our life? Are we unclear on Jesus' identity? Do we not recognize who Jesus is like these disciples? How many times do we hear or think Jesus was just some religious leader? Jesus was just an influential man in history who died. Jesus was just a good moral teacher, right? Or, or are we unclear on what Jesus came to do? We know he's an important person, just like his disciples, but we trip up on what his purpose actually was. Do we misunderstand God's plan of salvation? Do we think Jesus simply came to give us our best life now? Or that Jesus is a way to offer us material prosperity? Or perhaps, perhaps you're unclear on what happened to Jesus. Do we question why the tomb really was empty? Isn't Jesus dead? Explanations and arguments that go on like, maybe Jesus had a secret twin brother. Maybe one of the chief priests stole the body. There's probably some other explanation we don't know yet. People don't just rise from the dead. It was the disbelief of these men that prevented them from seeing Jesus right before them. Not just disbelief of the resurrection, but disbelief in Jesus' identity and disbelief in what Jesus came to do. And so ask yourself, ask yourself, am I limiting God to my rationale, man's rationale? Look at yourself and ask, am I putting God in my own box? What's comfortable for me? What I think God is like? Suppose, suppose a point comes in your life. You're studying hard to get into med school, engineering, or law school. Perhaps it's a job. Perhaps it's a work visa. But then, the letter comes in. Rejection. You start to wonder, I prayed every day for this. I came to church. Is God ignoring me? As life goes on, you hit 30. You're still not married. You say to yourself, I thought Jesus was going to give me the good life. You get to 40, you lose your job, your kids hate you. You ask the question, isn't Jesus supposed to provide for me? Are you misinterpreting what God is doing through Jesus? Make sure you aren't disappointed that God has not fulfilled what he has not promised. Yes, it's a triple negative. Make sure... You aren't disappointed that God has not fulfilled what he has not promised. So the question is, if God hasn't promised a great political leader like the disciples thought, he hasn't promised us material prosperity, our best life now, what, what has God promised? And this brings us to stage two, our second point, the catalyst, stage two. So we've seen what it looks like to be stuck in disbelief, the symptoms. But what can we do about it? How do we know what God has promised? Well, as far as I'm concerned, Jesus really only tackles this one way. Jesus, Jesus tackles disbelief by opening the scriptures. Verse 44, it's on the screen. Then he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus not only literally opens up the scriptures, but also it is Jesus who helps us to see and understand what is the meaning of these scriptures. 
Can you imagine what that have been like? Verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them, for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Can you imagine what it have been like to have Jesus himself interpret the whole Old Testament for you? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they describe it in verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? When we see the scriptures correctly, the whole Old Testament, from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of it, when we can understand that chock-a-block amount of text, it sets our hearts ablaze. But for some reason, for some reason, the Old Testament just doesn't seem to set people's hearts ablaze. It often doesn't set my own heart ablaze. A lot of the time when I'm at home in bed, uh, I'm just reading the Old Testament. I just get sleepy. It seems pointless. I just can't seem to figure out what this has to do with me. All those genealogies, all those laws. What is going on? I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but Jesus is patient in our blindness. I can just imagine in verse 41. Let me show you when I was reading this. But while they were still amazed and unbelieving because of their joy on Jesus appearing, and then here I can imagine Jesus just uh, giving a sigh. Here we go again with these disciples. And then so ask them, do you have anything here to eat? In preparation for a long session in the scriptures. And then in his patience, in his patience, he opens up the scriptures to them. Jesus, he opens up the scriptures to show us, to show us all that all this time, it isn't about us. It's about him. The question we should be asking isn't, what does this have to do with me? But instead, we should be asking, what do the scriptures tell us about him, Jesus? This very question was my moment of realization, the eureka effect, the epiphany God wants us all to realize but we miss it so easily. We can get so fixated on making us the frame of reference when all along, it's all about Jesus. It is so easy for us to put our own thoughts, our own ideas into the Bible. For Jesus, Jesus wants to show the disciples, show us that in our unbelief, he isn't just just the founder of a religion, He didn't just pop up on the scene and disappear irrelevant, but he is the creator of the universe. He is the one in control. That he he is the frame of reference, not us. Jesus wants to show us that the scriptures are all about the Messiah suffering and dying. That the scriptures all point to Jesus as the king who died and rose again for his people. Verse 26. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 46, he also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. See the repetition throughout this passage? The Old Testament is not a series of texts that we can just put our own ideas into. David and Goliath, it's not about us slaying the giants in our life. Here's a classic. Jeremiah 29, 11, it's on the, on the screen. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
God is not promising material prosperity here. God is promising Jesus, a new covenant. God is promising certain hope and a future in Jesus. The whole book of Leviticus is not about us keeping all those food laws and rules. No, you don't have to cook goat a certain way. And yes, you can eat ham, bacon, and sausages if you want. You are already made clean and pure in Jesus. We don't flick to a random page in the Bible and arm wrench your idea into it. Have a look with me at Ecclesiastes 10.19. It was a random page I flicked to when I was writing the sermon. <laughs> a feast is prepared for laughter, and wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. <laughs> I can just imagine someone who flicked to this randomly. Their eyes widen. Did the Bible just say that money is the answer for everything? Come on, guys. Let's not forget about context here. No, the Bible is not saying money is the answer for everything. But instead, the passage, this passage is highlighting the thoughts of a foolish king. My friend, my friend recently went to a wedding and this verse was read out. Leviticus 6.13. Fire must be kept burning on the altar continually. It must not go out. No, this is not saying you must never let the fire go out in your marriage. But it served as a reminder of God's continued presence for the Israelites at the time. It is God, Jesus, who specifies what we see in the scriptures, not us. In John 5, 39, Jesus tells the teachers of the Old Testament this statement. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These are the very scriptures that testify about Jesus. When we stop making the Old Testament mean what we want them to mean, when we stop thinking the Old Testament is just a set of disconnected passages, when we stop thinking the Old Testament is just some irrelevant book we don't need anymore, we start to see. We start to see that the Bible is one big story. We start to see that Jesus is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. We start to see that Jesus is the true and living God. The Old Testament is important. It truly does set our hearts ablaze. That's why as a church next term, our next series will be in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. The first book of these scriptures Jesus is talking about in this passage. We'll be going through Genesis chapter by chapter to see what it has to say about Jesus. You can expect and be excited that God will set your heart ablaze. Jesus doesn't just want you to know the Old Testament, just to be able to recount all those verses and what they say. But Jesus, he wants you to know that they are fulfilled. Fulfilled in him. In Jesus. Jesus opens up our minds to see him for who he really is through the scriptures. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. If you can see Jesus for who he is, our Lord and Savior, the one that fulfills all of God's promises over thousands of years, the king of the universe, then Jesus has opened your eyes. If you can see Jesus for who he is, 
That is God working in you right now. How amazing is that? But, but maybe you're someone who's wondering, why, why hasn't God worked in me? Why can't I see? Why am I doubting? Is, is God not working in me? How can I trust my interpretation of the Old Testament? How can I trust myself? When you're asking yourself these questions, and you're here tonight wrestling with this, that is God working in you. That is God coming to you in your doubt, just like Jesus came to the disciples who are leaving in their doubt. Knowing God, knowing Jesus involves two things. Two things, you can write these down. Number one, recognition of how much we lack in knowledge of God. It is God who helps us to realize this. And number two, seek the Lord Jesus and do not give up. Those who have truly sought the Lord Jesus until they have found him can truly say that they have known God. God promises, promises with his very own words that when we seek Jesus with all our hearts, we will surely find him. You can write these down if you want to see him say that himself. Proverbs 8.17, Deuteronomy 4.29, and Matthew 7.7, 7, just to name a few. If you are here tonight asking yourself these questions in doubt, you're already halfway there. You can tick off that first point. You're already further than most people in this world. But we've got to keep seeking. We've got to keep going. All of us, whether you're a Christian or not, keep seeking the Lord Jesus. Let me give you a helpful illustration just to help you understand why knowing God can seem so hard, so frustrating that you know so little. Knowing God is more complex than, say, knowing another person. And knowing another person is more complex than knowing an object. The more complex the thing, the more complex the knowing. Let's, let's take you and me, for example. There's only so much you can know about me. You can know what I look like. You can know how I can speak, my mannerisms. You've probably already noticed some funny hand mannerisms I do up here. But, but anything more than that, it's me that has to let you in to know more. One of my friends, I know him really well. We've been through heaps together over the years. But he struggles from depression. I'd have never known that if he didn't let me in. The quality and extent of our knowledge depends more on them than us. It's a result of them allowing us to know. And so it is with God. We are fully dependent on God in this. And that is why we always pray. Never stop praying. Asking God to keep giving us the strength to find Him, to give us the understanding to see Him in the Scriptures. And that is why, why we must we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. We don't, we don't put our own ideas into the Bible. We let God speak for himself. Let his own words shed light on what he has said. God has invited all of us in on his big picture, his big plan by giving us Jesus. God has explained it all through his very own words, the words we are engaging with right now. Now, just, just a quick add-on here. God knows some of us do appreciate visual learning too. He doesn't just give us words, but he has given us symbols as well. Symbols to remind us and help us to recognize who Jesus is. 
And so like many of us, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus must have appreciated some visual learning too. Have a look at verse 30. It's on the screen. It was as he, Jesus, reclined at the table and with them, and he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. After engaging with the scriptures and seeing this visual symbol in the breaking of bread, they remembered Jesus. They recognized Jesus as God. Now, this doesn't mean we need these symbols to recognize and remember Jesus. We do need his word, but these are helpful symbols for all of us to participate in. And so a little later, we will all have this opportunity to witness and share in this symbol of who Jesus Christ is, to remember him, the true sacrifice who was broken for us. Jesus does not see doubt and disbelief as a barrier to seeing the truth. When you are in doubt, it's almost like saying you're ready to take the next step to address these doubts. Doubt is an opportunity to see more of who Jesus is. Doubt should never lead you away from Jesus, but they should cause you to run to him as you realize, we all realize how much we lack in knowledge of God. It is Jesus who is the catalyst for our transformation. And finally, stage three. Stage three, the end result. And once the penny has dropped, the eureka effect has sunk in. We get to see the implications of this transformation, the end product. Verse 47. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This has been God's plan all along, to come down in the flesh through his son Jesus, the Messiah, not just to fulfill a bunch of random disconnected prophecies, but to demonstrate his faithfulness in keeping his promises, his commitment to come down to save us, to come down and pay for the consequences of our sins, death, and in his resurrection bring us life, hope, a promise, a promise of salvation. Now I know some of you might be feeling, I've heard this all before, I can speak for myself in admitting that I often hear this message and it goes right over my head because of how often I hear it. But this is being saved from death itself. And in our rationale, our comfortable little box, we think, how is that possible? No more death? It's too good to be, too good to be true. Too good to be true is what Jesus' closest followers thought. But look at Jesus. He didn't just do some magic trick and rise from the dead. He is God in the flesh. He is the giver of life. And we see thousands of years of promises fulfilled in him, giving us confidence, confidence that God keeps his promises. And he is promising eternal life. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. Stop trusting in man's view of Jesus, putting Jesus in our own little comfortable box, setting ourselves as the frame of reference, where we think we know it all already, where we try to set things in our own terms, that is what sin is. That is the reason for death. We're trusting ourselves and not the giver of life, God. Now, it doesn't quite end there, though. The end result is not simply eternal life, but it's worship, 
worship of God, the only one worthy of our worship. And what that looks like, what this worship looks like is proclamation of Him. Worshiping God looks like running and telling others about God, who God is, and what He has promised. Just like these disciples, when the moment of realization hit, they worshiped God. They ran to others, telling them about Him. And this is where we fit in. When we have been moved from a state of unbelief, just like these disciples in this passage, when God has shown us how little we know about Him, when we seek God with all our hearts, when we finally see the risen Jesus for who He is, the creator of the universe in the flesh, the one you're engaging with right now as you read your Bibles, there's no other response than praise and worship of Him. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my Father promised. As for you, disciples, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Luke ends his gospel, this book, on a cliffhanger. But we know God keeps his promises. And this cliffhanger, it's been fulfilled. Acts 2.32, the book right after Luke. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. What you have heard today is intertwined with the promised Holy Spirit. We will see the bread broken as a reminder of Jesus' body broken for us. And you being here tonight, hearing that Jesus Christ is God, is intertwined with the promised Holy Spirit. Tonight, through this transformation, we realize, we realize we are the fulfillment of that cliffhanger. As we Christians are scattered throughout all over the world, we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. As we are scattered all over the world, we proclaim this truth. Proclaim the good, this good news that Jesus is God. Jesus has come to open your eyes to the reality of eternal life, found only in Him. And so we've looked at unbelief of who Jesus is and what He came to do. That transformation means reading the Scriptures rightly and allowing God to speak for Himself. That all the Scriptures are all about Jesus. And finally, that worship of God means proclamation of Him. As we've gone through all that, I want to end tonight by praying for us, knowing that it is God alone, Jesus who opens our minds, transforms us. Not me, not anyone else, only God. So I want to pray for us that God may continue to do that through this week, through this month, through this year, for the rest of our lives. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know you're a good Father. We know you're in control of all things, and we know that you love us. And so as we earnestly seek to find you, seek to see your Son Jesus for who he is, in the, you in the flesh, we humbly come before you now to ask for help in that. We come from so many different circumstances and situations. And so we pray that as we open up our Bibles day by day, Help us to keep going. Give us the strength to keep doing that. Put the right people around us to encourage us. 
But above all, help us to see your son Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the one and only worthy of our worship. We ask that you help us to do that for the rest of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' most precious name, our Lord and Savior. Amen.